0: To uncommon knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. When I first got to know my guest, Peter Thiel, he was a struggling student at Stanford Law School. Since then he has co-founded PayPal, become one of the principal investors in Facebook, and turned his present company, Clarium Capital into the one, one of the leading hedge funds in the nation. This past September, Forbes put Peter on its list of the 400 richest Americans. A point to bear in mind as Peter and I talk about economics, During that same period of time, my principal achievement was to go from a 30 to a 15-year mortgage. Um, Peter argues that a book published in France in 1968 under the title Le Défi Américain, showing off for you there, or The American Challenge has a lot to say to us in the United States in 2008. Today on Uncommon Knowledge, Peter Thiel, a 40-year-old book and the state of the American economy segment 1 how america once looked by the way first question this book was published the year you were born how did you even hear about it let alone tell me that you wanted
1: to talk about it on the show well one of my one of my friends told me i had to i had to read the book a few years ago and uh, it it was it's it's always striking to uh, read these books about the future that were written in the past and the question is how does the present map up to uh and compare with uh, the way uh, the future used to look
0: okay so um, Jean-Jacques Servin Schreiber published the American Challenge in France in 1967, the American Translation in 1968, 40 years ago, and he argues that the economy of the United States was so dynamic that, quote, in 1980, the United States will have entered another world. By the year 2000, to quote, life will be as different from what it is today as our societies now are from Egypt or Nigeria. America will be a post-industrial society with a per capita income of $7,500. There will be only four workdays a week of seven hours per day. The year will be comprised of 39 work weeks and 13 weeks of vacation. With weekends and holidays, this makes 147 workdays a year and 218 free days a year, and all this in America within a single generation." Close quote. It didn't pan out as Servant Schreiber predicted. How come?
1: Well, I think that's a very, uh, very interesting, very important question. Uh, the, the basic thing that uh, Zerban, Tribe predicted was that you were going to have this exponential growth in technology, and uh, and I think the the very difficult problem is there's been less growth than people thought there was going to be. And we have, you know, we have obviously the big headline uh, type stuff. You have stories on Google and Apple, and there's right. sort of all these very high-profile tech companies. But in some sense, the compound growth has been less than people thought, even with globalization, even with the computer revolution, the internet revolution, the biotech revolution—it somehow has not added up to quite as much of a difference as people thought. And so today, people in the U.S. have to compete more with the rest of the world than they did 40 years ago. Whereas, if you had this exponential technological growth, uh, you might have to compete less because we'd be so much further ahead of the rest of the world. Okay, so it goes to some—it goes to something very interesting that's. Uh, that's gone wrong with the way people thought the future was going to look. And, you know, if you were in the mid-1960s, people thought it was going to be the Jetsons, you're going to have vacation trips on the moon and flying cars and robots doing all your work, and, uh, and it hasn't quite happened. It's been just much slower.
0: Right. The only robot that does any work that I'm aware of is the Roomba little carpet sweeper. That's as far as we've gotten. Now, I should repeat or I should make note that the American challenge, Américain. le défi américain, swept Western Europe. This is not a, a, it's not as if you've noticed a book that sort of slipped through the cracks 40 years ago. This was an enormous book. The argument that this man laid down was bought by Western Europe and substantially by the American elite, Arthur Schlesinger in the American translation. There's a big long forward by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. So, so the question I guess would be, Uh, Was it just a hysterical Frenchman getting overexcited? Or was it a reasonable argument at the time and in some fundamental sense the American economy has underperformed?
1: I think it was a reasonable extrapolation from what was going on at the time. So if you looked at the world, if you were born in 1950 and you were looking at the world in the late 60s, it looked like everything was just getting better automatically every single year. And and certainly and then it somehow slowed down a lot and you had, the, you, know, you had the oil shocks, the resource constraints in the 70s, it got restarted sort of in the 80s and 90s, but, uh, but we've really had uh, 40 years of, uh, of much slower growth. Than All before. right.
0: Let me attempt to contradict you. Um, Economist Art Laffer and Stephen Moore in their new book, The End of Prosper- Prosperity, quote, America's net worth climbed in real terms from 25 trillion in 1980 to 57 trillion in 2007. More wealth was created in the United States in the past 25 years than in the previous 200 years. In 1967, only one in 25 families earned $100,000 or more, whereas now in constant dollars, almost one in four families do. That's really a very, very impressive record, right? Well, you have to sort of. We may not be flying to the moon, but this is a substantial
1: achievement. The United, the American economy has been amazingly prosperous. Well, you have to drill down on a lot of the the facts. So I think um, the asset prices have gone up tremendously, uh, for uh, and we've had a you know had an incredible bull market in equities from eighty two to two thousand and seven. I think if you updated it for the last year. You've probably had to take off about fourteen or fifteen trillion in well, terms of the loss in housing and and, and I stocks. googled around
0: last night, and the number I came up with was sixteen trillion. So, is the sort of yeah. rough estimate? So uh, stocks, so, housing values, so it's, it's values been calibrated and so forth. down
1: quite a bit in right. just the uh, the last year. And then if you make that adjustment on a per capita basis, uh, you know population's grown. Um, we're probably about where we were in nineteen eighty, on a per capita basis today.
0: Uh, really. So if you
1: make those two adjustments, um, and uh, and so, and so it's it's. It's and now, and maybe it's grown some, but it's certainly grown less quickly than people would think. Okay. Um, fam- family incomes are, are up uh, some from the, uh, from the uh, late 60s, but it's not clear that's the right metric because uh, you have a lot of uh, families where uh, both spouses are working. And that's, that's very different from the world of, of the late 60s. Okay. And, uh,
0: let, let me go on to uh, segment two who's on vacation now? Servant Schreiber made a lot about all the vacation days Americans would have in the future, and, uh, more free days than working days. Now, let me present you a couple of arresting statistics. Until one thousand, nine hundred and seventy, Western Europeans and Americans worked about the same number of hours each year, and after one thousand, nine hundred and seventy, they diverge. Western Europeans work less, and Americans work more until the new president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, changed the law earlier this very year. France had a work week, by law, of 35 hours. No more than that, no paid overtime. The typical American work week, 42 hours. In France, vacation guaranteed, five weeks plus 12 public holidays. Typical American vacation time, two weeks. So what's going
1: on? Well, people are working more in the U.S. than than France. Uh, and there are all sorts of crazy laws on the books in France that prevent people from, from working. You know, you get you police officers in Paris who ticket your cars if you're parked for more than right. 35 hours at an office. and they, they measure all these things very, very methodically. Uh, but at the same time, I think the thing that is going on is uh, we are nowhere near the 13 weeks that uh, Zurban Schreiber was predicting in, in 67 or 68 for the, for the U.S. And somehow things have fallen short. Now, you know, I think you can argue that people like working more and, um, but I think at the margins there are a lot of people who actually would prefer to work somewhat less. Uh, you know most people's jobs aren't as fun as, as your, your job and they, uh, they would like to uh, have some sort of different balance. And, and so when you look at uh, families where both spouses are working, they might have to have a third job or third part-time job on top of the regular job to make ends meet. The fact that people are working around the clock and running really hard just to stay in place is telling you something about this you, incredible decline you, going on beneath you the surface. You are
0: sounding so bearish about America, I'm not going to let that stand, at least not yet. Let me try a couple of economists' explanations of this divergence in working patterns. Bruce Sasserdote of Dartmouth, quote, Europe, Europe has been friendlier to the politics of the left than the United States for the last half century. Unions in Europe used their strength to bargain for more holidays, more vacation days, shorter regular work weeks and more unemployment insurance. He's, it's clear he's correct about that, right? Yes.
1: But the question, the question look, the yeah. question is not how many hours, the question is not how many hours are people working or how many days they're working a year. On some level, the question is how much are people getting paid per hour?
0: Ah, all right. Then I present to you Edward Prescott of Arizona State University, winner of the 2004 Nobel Prize. I know you so well that I can anticipate where you're impressive. about to go. Nobel Prize in Economics. And Prescott says that Americans work harder because they get paid more after taxes. Quote, marginal tax rates explain virtually all of the difference. Americans are working harder because they get something for it. This is good news about the United States, not bad.
1: It is, um, it is, it's definitely not the way people would have thought about it in the, naively would have thought about this in the late 60s, when people would have thought that you we're, were going to have this, all this technology progress. And uh, and you'd have a society where uh, where there would actually be less pressure on people to uh, to be working around the clock. So yes, I think the marginal taxes are different. There are all sorts of regulations that are different. So, right. So um, but I think the uh, the question is um, how many how many um, how many women in, in two um, in two income households really would choose to work if their husband was making more money. And, um, and, the and answer, so when you drill down on that question, I think it's, uh, it's much more complicated. And, no. and then if you, if you say, well, they're working just because of the marginal tax rates, this, this doesn't resonate as, as true with, um, with the social realities of what's going on in this country.
0: Well, we, we know the answer to the first question, right? Because in recent years of the pattern, has there was a period, oh, I don't have the statistics on paper, so I'll probably flub it. But roughly speaking, there was a period beginning in the 70s or so when um, high-status women worked. This was something that, yes. and that, but in the last decade or so, the higher the income level, the more likely the woman was to stay home, not to work, suggesting and, and, that...
1: And, and the, yes, that, that is true. Right, right, okay. and, and the part, however, that's problematic is that relatively few um, women are in households where the income level is high enough that they can make that choice. So that is the choice women would make. Most middle-class women are not able to actually make that choice because they're not. Um, their husband's not able to make enough money, and so um, one one key metric along these lines would be how much are, what's the hourly wage that the average male is earning, and how do you compare that today versus 1973, for example? And it's basically flat since 73. The hourly even taking into account for men has not gone up in 35 years.
0: Okay. Uh-
1: and Again, we have all sorts of complicated right. adjustments for inflation right. and so on down the line.
0: And but There's but one adjustment I'm trying to remember and I, I, again I'll flub it. You'll have it at the, as soon as I try, as begin to describe it, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. But isn't there also an adjustment for uh, risk in the marketplace? That is to say that in the old days you'd get such and such an income and tied to it would be such and such a risk that you'd lose your job. Or that your income, this mm-hmm. variability of income, is really yes. what's going on. Hasn't that at least decreased?
1: It's it's quite unclear. I, mean, it? I think I All think right. it has it has gone down some, um, although it's not clear that's a good thing or a bad thing. So when you had a heavy manufacturing economy, there was much more variability than in a, a services economy, but it may be that a services economy has ultimately less growth. So you know if you have a factory that's making mm. widgets um you can imagine a factory that's making 10 times as many widgets if you get more automation per worker right uh, if you have a restaurant it's hard to imagine um a waiter or waitress right. being 10 times as efficient as a waiter or waitress was 100 years ago
0: the best starbucks barista can only squeeze out so many espressos only so per much. hour
1: and so okay. uh, so there is a uh, there's less volatility um, as a result of the shift towards um a uh, service economy but there's probably also less growth
0: very quickly i want to I want to flesh out the nature of your argument. You are not saying that the United States has failed relative to Europe.
1: No, they both they both have fallen way short of expectations.
0: You're not saying the United States has failed relative to China.
1: China is complicated, but uh, but it it's China is still extremely far behind the US. Okay. So it's so not you're failed saying... relative to Japan or Western Europe. But it has failed massively relative to what people expected 40 years ago.
0: Okay. Um, segment three, Peter Thiel on what is wrong. You gave a talk in October as part of the Big Think project, which, I, as I recall, is www.bigthink.com. People can click on that and get the uh, streaming video of you. People whose appetite is merely whetted by this video today can get more of you. "Quote: There has not been enough real growth in the economy." Close quote. Here's what I'm trying to tease out. What I'd like you to explain about that. Are you saying simply, look, it is the nature of human existence that 2 or 3% growth is, a, is really pretty good and, and uh, we ought to be happy with that and strive toward that? Or are you saying that the United States in these last 40 years has demonstrated chronic problem, there's something wrong that needs to be addressed and fixed? There's something wrong with expectations or there's something really wrong with the real economy?
1: Well, there's something, um, there's something really wrong with the real economy. So it's, it's, there's not enough um, progress and I'd say, say long term real growth in our world is driven by two things. One is global trade and the other is technology. Okay. Um, I think we've had the easy gains from global trade. So I think going forward the main gains are going to happen from technology and, uh, and I think that Explain
0: the easy gains from global trade.
1: Trade with China, people in China make something more cheaply and therefore um, your real, um, your real standard of living goes up in the U.S.
0: And, and all this accompanied by the post-World War II regime of free trade, the NAFTA and, especially, and all that stuff.
1: Especially starting in the late 60s and early 70s when globalization really took off. Okay. Um, in, in 1980s and so on. And then, um, and then glo- uh, technology is, is more um, intensive growth where you uh, replace a typewriter with a word processor and that's more efficient. So it's is it, we have one type of growth where you have 10 typewriters go from one to ten typewriters, the other one is you go from a typewriter to a word processor. Gotcha. And those are basically the two ways that you can improve growth or productivity, extensive and intensive. I think we've had some of both, but the combination has just been not as much as people think, and that's why, that's why people are having to work harder, that's why, um, that's why the wages have gone up some, but not as much as people think there's been some increase in, 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 in real wealth but not as much as people think. Now when you ask right. why, why is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I think a very difficult question but I'll throw out several yes. answers and I think it's a combination of, of some of these things. So I think one is we have an education system that's very broken in this country and so people, most people do not have the skills to, uh, to do these kinds of, uh, these kinds of you jobs. You surely
0: want to distinguish between American universities where broadly speaking, everybody on the planet aged 18 or over mm-hmm. is trying to get into a Stanford or a Grinnell or American. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good, right? And you, you want to talk about, about public schools and high schools, right? Or,
1: well, well, the, or the top universities are, are quite good on a relative basis. Um, it's very hard to know on an absolute basis whether they could be better or, or worse than they are. So I think uh, even with the top universities, uh, if you take something like science research, um, there are very difficult questions about how a Efficient it is. Is it this? Uh, is there this complicated government procurement process where people say they're doing research on something, but it's it's really just some other different weird pet project they're working on to get tenure, uh, and the lack of transparency is extremely what hard. What a suspicious cast of mind you have. Well, Mr. we are living in a very uh, well, look. We're living in a very um, in a very uh, specialized world where. Um, specialization has led to a point where it's very difficult for people to understand things. So if you think about the, the, the recent housing crisis and uh, the credit rating agencies, um, the imprimatur they were giving on these bonds was very critical because nobody could evaluate them. Now It turned out they couldn't either and, uh, and we have this sort of deferral Stop to experts in, in many different areas. Okay,
0: let me ask you clearly a question that I must ask you is what went wrong? Now let me tell you My Little Mind, molded as it was by the big mind of Milton Friedman, Mm -hmm. begins with the presumption that if you see a catastrophe, it's somewhere you're likely to find the government intervening in some ham-fisted way that messes up the workings of the marketplace. And fundamentally, My Little Mind sees two things that went wrong. One of them was the creation of the subprime market and there you see it. The government is pushing Mm -hmm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to give money to people to get into homes they can't really afford. The government is creating the subprime right. marketplace and that's a catastrophe and it's sort right. of a Miltonesque catastrophe. The government intrudes where it ought not. But the second bit of it, as best I can understand, is that all kinds of highly paid, very intelligent, sophisticated people who had a full array of incentives to do otherwise, nevertheless carried lousy assets on their books, didn't value them correctly, and made systematically bad choices in investments and that bit there is no Milton-esque explanation for. Yes. So I'm hoping that you will explain well,
1: it. Well, I think there's, there's a history of the last five years and there's a history of the last 40. So you know, okay. the, the time horizon is very important. So we had a housing and finance uh, thing that went really crazy in the last few years. Right. And there were certain assumptions that were embedded in it that were probably just wrong. So one was that house prices would always go up. And that is probably a true assumption in a world where you have massive growth. When you don't have growth, it's not true. And, uh, and I think that was just a mistake people made. And the reason they made that mistake was because you can't have growth if there's no progress on the technology front. And so I think if you, if you want to sort of wind the clock back a little bit further, we had this, um, this tech bubble in the 90s that preceded the housing bubble. Parts of it were real, but parts of it were fake. And you know, you have to sort of wonder how much technology innovation was there in the one uh, hundredth online pet food company, for example? Um, and when the when the technology that's thing, the one
0: I invested in, incidentally,
1: I'm, I'm sure you did. I, <laughs> missed, I
0: missed PayPal, but, but I certainly yeah, all right. But, go ahead. but so
1: so, and so when when the technology bubble of the '90s turned out to be more fake than real, then um, then people had to somehow make returns elsewhere, and you made it up with leverage and leverage was housing for consumers, exotic financial products for banks and then it was aided and abetted by the government racket that was Fannie Mae. So I think, I think, uh, you know, I think it's a, sort of a complicated story but, uh, but one of the reasons that a lot of the common sense views went wrong were that people assumed and were too optimistic about the story of automatic, relentless progress that this is something that just happens automatically. For example, an alternate history of the, of yeah. the US in the 20th century yeah. would be that uh, that the US, um, that you had these totalitarian disasters um, mm-hmm. in you know, communism and fascism where they basically destroyed all their talented people and they all came to the US in the 50s and 60s and so we had this enormous boom and, uh, and that we made a big mistake to assume that this was just automatically going to happen and, uh, and that, and that uh, instead you had to, you know, the, what, what is necessary is for you to have a rigorous education system, you have to have um, a society that encourages people to do this and you can't, it doesn't work if people think things are automatic. Okay. So to ha- to Just one last. Go ahead, sure, sure, sure. So your question about Fannie Mae, yeah. you know, the question is why were not more people critical of Fannie Mae? and there were, Even on the Republican side, it was a small minority right. that was speaking out about this and it right. was because they didn't think it was that bad and they didn't think it was that bad because they thought that um, no one would really lose money. It was all housing and housing was going to go up because it was automatic progress.
0: Okay. Segment four, the political economy of our day. What I want is the keynote, the theme music that plays in Peter Thiel's mind as he thinks about the economy today. And let me try a quotation on you and see if you'll go for it, as sort of thematically correct, the right mood. This comes from the perceptive economist and trenchant social observer Tony Soprano. (laughs) Episode one of The Sopranos, quote, it's good to be in on something from the ground floor. I came too late for that, I know, but lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over." What do you think?
1: Well, I don't think the best is, is, is over um, at all. So, you know, I think on a 30, 40 year horizon, I'd be quite optimistic that things are going to get, get better. But I think, uh, I think there is this very crazy adjustment process and one of the one of the problems from a political economy perspective is that we're probably, um, that the regulatory stuff is we let all these crazy things happen and then we shut down all risk taking in response to that. And so I think, I think we have this, um, and so the, the worry is what happens in the political system in the U.S. the next five to ten years to okay. just
0: break things all together. I want to get, uh, clearly I want to get to that, but, for, but I also want to kind of establish your own thinking as well. Um, This is a quotation I don't have written down but I'll paraphrase it. There's a fellow who blogs somewhere on Yahoo who goes by the name The Naked Economist. That's enough for people to Google and find him if they want to. And he wrote, this is a pretty close paraphrase, even as in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down, no serious person could any longer believe in communism. In the autumn of 2008, no serious person could any longer continue to believe in Unfettered free market.
1: Well, we haven't had a free market. This is you know this, so, is, this so is what I was like. okay,
0: this what, is. Has, what have the events of the recent months done to your views as a libertarian and a free market man? Shaken them? Uh,
1: not particularly. Although I mean, it was all eminently predictable that we had way too much government entanglement in this. Uh, the part that I am more pessimistic about mm-hmm. is that people will draw the wrong lessons from this. If you look at the early 1930s, there were a lot of reasons things blew up. Uh, it was. And it was not necessarily an unfettered free market, it was uh, quite possibly the trade tariffs and the protectionist stuff and uh, various um, bad decisions the Federal Reserve was making on the governmental side. So you can make an argument that it was the government that you know, made a sort of garden variety recession turn into the depression. Mm-hmm. And people did not think of that that way in the 30s. They didn't actually start talking about what the government's role was in it until Friedman wrote his book in 1962 and they didn't start reversing the bad decisions they made because of their misunderstanding of the history till Reagan came along in the 80s, and so the the big worry is that people will it take, five decades, this. To us will take us five decades to get it squared away. It will take us five decades to get this straightened out. I'm not that pessimistic, but I think uh I think there's a very important uh, question of exactly what went wrong here, and I don't think it had anything to do with free markets. I think it had to do with you know excessive government entanglement on the one hand, and then on the other hand these long-term motors of growth. Uh, working much less well for uh, and was understood. Uh, then was understood, and part of it was again excessive government entanglement and things like education.
0: Okay, um, lay blame and then figure out what ought to be done. We're talking about government policy. Art Laffer quote: "What this administration, we're not talking about Obama, and the we're talking about." Last few years here, what this administration and Congress have done will be viewed in much the same light as what Herbert Hoover did in the years 1929 to 1932. We are now witnessing the end of prosperity. "Close quote." And Art Laffer, who was a an advisor to Ronald Reagan and supply side economics and so forth, Art Laffer said, "Bush and this past Congress, largely uh, past several Congresses,
1: mm-hmm. largely Republicans. Republicans messed it up." Well they certainly were not um certainly if you look at the sp- way the spending spiraled out of control the government sector got you know. got a lot bigger uh, there was a sense in which bush was the uh, was the worst president in the US since LBJ and LBJ you was pretty bad Do you subscribe to that view If you just look at the the amount of increased government spending absolutely You do Just if you that one that one metric Now I think um I think the um the the uh well, I agree with Laffer that uh, lower taxes uh are very desirable and you know very a very important component. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the uh, the mistake that he makes is to assume that this is just going to happen. And you know we're we're li- and for some reason it's not a popular issue anymore. People people want the government to take care of them. And uh, and you have um I think we have some you know the, the the real problem is that if we have a down cycle does this actually make the regulatory stuff even worse? You know the right. the tech thing when it ended. Um we we um you know however real or fake it was in the 90s. When it ended, you got Sarbanes-Oxley, you got a whole bunch of additional regulations right. and then it broke it even more for the next decade. Right. And, uh, and so the question is uh, now that you know, there was risk taking that was done in bad ways, are we now going to outlaw risk taking altogether okay. and break things even more as in we the sit next here today, to ten
0: years? As we sit here today, we're still uh, s- some weeks from Barack Obama's taking the oath of office as the 44th president, but he's announced his economic team. Tim Geithner, Uh, Chairman of the New York Mm -hmm. Fed, Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, former treasury secretary in the Clinton administration. Um, They're talking about a massive, I'll let you, I don't know whether massive is the right term. Anyway, a minimum of $300 billion uh, in uh, public works projects and some sort of unemployment security, some sort of protect, I I haven't read the details. I don't know that the details exist. We have the $750 billion bailout Mm -hmm and the president-elect and his economic team are already calling for an additional
1: at least $300 billion. Good? Bad? What should um, they be doing? I don't know if it makes much, I, I, don't, I don't think it's particularly good, but I don't know if it makes that much of a difference. I mean, long term you want to fix things that enable long term productivity growth to happen. Right. And uh, the road we're going down is the road that Japan went down in the 90s, where you had one Keynesian stimulus after another, the government borrows money, if the government borrows another trillion dollars, it means there's one trillion less in the private sector. And, uh, and and then the question is, is the government going to deploy that money better or worse than the private sector? In the short run, maybe it helps a little bit because the money gets spent more quickly and you can sort of get a short-term stimulus. You
0: can get a little Keynesian stimulus. In effect, yes. you're, you're fooling I mean, the Keynes, market. Keynes right? does work to that right. extent, yeah.
1: but in the long run, uh, it probably uh, means just a lot less long-term productivity growth. And uh, and this short-term, long-term trade-off, is, you know, it is it is one of the places where the U.S. is at a massive disadvantage. As we are constantly focused on, you know, the next six months, the next year, not thinking about the next 20 or 30 years. And this is, you know, we're better off than China in every way except that one way. Mm. China's mm. better about thinking about think the long in terms run of decades, don't they? than the short run.
0: Right, okay. Segment five, our final segment, Fine Minds. Let me read you a few quotations from very bright people and then ask you, my very bright friend, how you'd respond. Let's begin with Jean-Jacques Servin Schreiber, writing 40 years ago in the American Challenge. Quote, during the past 10 years, so he's talking about 58 to 68. During the past 10 years, American power has made an unprecedented leap forward. There is a real danger that Europe may forever be confined to second place. Close quote. Is the United States now in the position that Europe was then? And is China now in the position that the United States was in
1: then? Uh, The U.S. is definitely at risk of seeing several decades of slow growth or stagnation. It is, um, it is not clear that uh, China, China may uh, catch up to the U.S. It's unclear they'll be able to overtake the U.S. because it's unclear there's any innovation happening in China. China is not a frontier country. It's not pushing the frontiers. It can copy the West, like Japan, copy the West. They can catch up, but I don't think they can overtake us.
0: So, so the Ch- Chinese, even as you look to the next decade or, or or somewhat longer, the main Chinese game is still moving people from the countryside where they're growing rice into factories where, they can, where they're more productive. But they, they're, they get still be... desi- they're still making toys designed in the United States or tires. De- yes.
1: They get to be more productive doing things that are already being done in the West. Got now, it. Geopolitically it's significant because China has four times as many people as the U.S. does and so if, uh, if China merely catches up to the U.S it will become the world's leading power and that changes, that can change things in important geopolitical ways. So do you expect that to happen? Uh, yes, that's on current on current trajectories I would expect China's GDP to surpass the US within five years, even though the per capita GDP may never catch up.
0: Oh, I see, I see, I see, okay, all right, all right. Um, Hendrik Hertzberg in the New Yorker magazine writing about the election, emphatically, comprehensively, the public has turned against conservatism. The faith that unfettered markets and minimal taxes on the rich will solve every domestic problem is dead, for a generation or more.
1: We'll see. We'll. We'll. we'll I, you know, the, 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 these political predictions tend to be tend to be um, very off. Uh, and uh, and I think it will. Um, I think a lot of it will come down to how the Obama administration performs the next uh, in the next few years. And. Uh, it is. I think the timing is not as good as FDR's was in the 1930s. You know, Roosevelt came in, in March 1933 which was also the point when unemployment happened to peak. He was lucky. He got the timing exactly right and then he got all the credit whether or not his policies did any good. Everything, the, everything
0: got gradually better from the moment he took office.
1: He happened to get the timing exactly right. I see. They were going to get better anyway. Maybe he slowed it down, maybe he accelerated. It. We can have a long debate about that, but he was mainly You and I, I
0: would hope you and I wouldn't have a debate about it. We,
1: one, one can have a long debate with one various all people. Right, all right, <laughs> but, uh, but I think, um, I, I do not think unemployment will peak in January 2009. And so I think that uh, Obama will not, it, it will be like FDR getting elected you know, in the fall of 1930 and we would, we would have had a very different postmortem. And that's by the way, something like that is what happened in the UK where basically the Labor uh, Party won in late 29, it was thrown out in uh, mid 31 and then the Conservatives ran the UK for the next, uh, for the next 15 years. So
0: uh, c- could I ask you to make a, just a nice tight political prediction? Do Republicans pick up an additional, you wouldn't expect Republicans to take control of and take back either chamber two years from now, would you?
1: No, but I think I think they will make very big gains, and uh, and most likely will win in two thousand twelve.
0: Okay, now um, this show, uh, there's quite a lot of darkness here in this show. In fact, we're in a plane that's going down. So I'm going to hand you the joystick, and I'm looking for a way to give do something to lift my spirits. If you can, that's just. If you can't, don't feel obligated. But if you can, do something to. Milton Friedman, perhaps the most consequential economist of the 20th century, certainly the second half I'd argue, and also our friend, who died just two years ago this month. At dinner with Milton about five years ago, I tried to pay him a compliment and argue that he had won the intellectual battle, that on economics departments of major universities across the country, free markets were now embraced. Mm -hmm. And Milton wouldn't have it. He said, "Yes." Uh, I, Milton and Mises and Hayek and George Stigler and others may have won an intellectual battle but if you look at practical politics, there is no evidence we have had any effect whatsoever. Government spending continues, regulations continue to proliferate and then he was quiet for for a moment and he looked at me and said, the challenge for my generation, Milton's generation, was to provide an intellectual defense for liberty. The challenge for your generation is whether you can keep it. Will you accept that framing?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think that uh, I think I think on the more optimistic end, on an optimistic note, um, even if we have a move against capitalism um, and against uh, against uh, freedom uh, in the next uh, few years, I think which um, is,
0: which, is, which we have to take it for granted now, don't you? Th- that that's it's unclear. It's unclear what's going to oh, really? happen. It's
1: always unclear, you know, because Obama wants to get reelected, the people in his administration want to get reelected, so it's unclear what they're gonna do. You know, they're they're already talking about not increasing taxes at all, which would be a you know a very good first step. But uh, but I think um, I think one of the reason, one of the constraints on it is that uh, we are in a far more competitive world. So in the nineteen thirties when you had the New Deal or the nineteen sixties when you had the Great Society, there was no other country in the world China was that was in a even remotely and, competing right. with the US. And so you know if you didn't like paying you know a ninety percent marginal tax rate in the thirties, you know you wouldn't, weren't going to move to Stalinist Russia, where the marginal tax rates were 100 percent, and you would get shot. Right. And so I think um, I think the fact that we are living in a more competitive world, while it's in some ways a symptom of America um, not staying ahead technology-wise, um, in practice it means that uh, uh, really bad decisions are much harder to make, and you can't unilaterally uh, leave it. Um, or to, or you know, or the only way it would is if globalization itself breaks cataclysmically. And mm. barring anything cataclysmic, I think uh, there are, uh, will be surprisingly big constraints on political action.
0: All right. Last question. You've said a number of times during this interview, technology, technology, technology. Improving schools is really the thing that must be done? If, you could, if, you, if I said to you, Peter, you've got to give me two sentences on what we must do to accelerate technological growth, how would you reply?
1: Well, there probably are regulatory things that need to be, you know, there needs to be less regulation, there needs to be a better, better education system both in primary and secondary schooling. Uh, there, are, there are probably uh, ways in which uh, it should be culturally valued to, to the point where people um, going into engineering is seen as, as valuable as going into, say, um, being a rock star or something like that. So I think, I think there are sort of are a number of levels that are financial, political, cultural that, that all intersect. But, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that's very odd about this whole technology debate is if you think about the whole broader debate about is the West in cultural decline? Mm. The, um, you know, the, basically the left says um, we're not because we have science and technology. And the right says we are and science and technology don't matter. And both the liberals, and conservatives in our so-called culture wars silently agree that we have this incredible science technology thing going on and they just disagree about its importance. And what, what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, if that's not going on, or if it's not going on as much as people think, uh, then there would be no question that we are in incredible decline as a society mm. and, um, and it would sort of, it, it's a very uh, important way that I think we need to reframe some of these issues.
0: Peter Thiel of Clarium Capital, thank you very much. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge. Thanks for joining us.